And now, coming to you from our studios high in the Northeast Georgia mountains, it's the Dangerous Skills Podcast, featuring compelling guests and conversation centered on faith, freedom, social evolution, and personal security. Be sure to listen closely, because if you miss out on the danger, you'll never learn the skills. And now, the most dangerous host in the digital space, Charles Powell. And we're back. Welcome to the Dangerous Skills Podcast. I'm Charles Powell. Now, my guest today is Chris Maxwell. I've known him a lot of years. He is a pastor. He's a lot of things. He's an author, an educator, and my friend, Chris Maxwell. But... What a lot of, I mean, a lot of people that see the podcast, Chris, what they hear is midnight rides and shoot 'em ups. But what people need to learn as this podcast starts to take hold across the digital space is that being dangerous is a whole lot more than just midnight rides and shoot 'em ups. It's also what you learn, what you know, how you respond in life. And before this is over, our guests that are listening, are, are, are those who are tuned in, are going to find out why you're so dangerous. But a crisis moment changed your life many years ago. So before we get to the crisis point in your life, tell us about your life today. What is your life today before that crisis moment? Yeah, my life today, I never thought about being dangerous. So uh, you're challenging me, and I like that. I welcome that. But my life today, I work as a campus pastor at Emmanuel College, I pastor a church, I, I, I write books, I help other people write their books and travel around and speak about some of life's struggles. Wow. So people have struggles. So um, do, do many of these people with these struggles that you encounter, any of them like, are any of these struggles like dangerous? Is it life and limb? Is it? Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you see in people? What, what have you experienced? To me, uh, the area that is the most dangerous are those people who are living in denial of their struggles. Wow. And here I am talking about my struggles and kind of saying things in a nice way with a smile on my face, telling stories, helping people identify their dangerous stories or the wow. parts of their stories that are dangerous where they often live in denial they don't talk about it but they need to hear a story about the dangers in life and how we can all be a little dangerous well you know and, and when people know the story of my life and some of my colleagues they're often like how could you live a life like that yeah well the answer is because it was just life you know, mm -hmm. it, it becomes normal. Danger can become normal. And the circumstances around us can become normal. And, and when it becomes normalized, it can get better or it can get worse. But yeah, as, as we're learning more about Chris Maxwell, Reverend Chris Maxwell, the Re right Reverend, most honorable Chris Maxwell, mm -hmm. uh, and your life, tell us now that we know what you are now, what were you before that crisis moment? Yeah, before the crisis happened uh, in my life, uh, my wife Debbie and I were raising our three sons. They were just growing up so fast. I was pastoring a church in Orlando, Florida, and I was writing Sunday school curriculum, you know, scholarly material, and uh, just falling in love with our congregation, loving the sons as they were growing up so fast. And I was, Charles, I was like always healthy. I was like, I enjoyed having the answers. I didn't mind voicing those, <laughs> those answers and explaining and defending those answers and I seemed to kind of have things together. And uh, I honestly, I liked being in that place. It didn't, it didn't seem that dangerous. And I liked being in the place that 
did not seem too dangerous. Yeah, you liked the comfort. You liked the I did. normal, the suburban lifestyle in, in yeah. Orlando. Well, uh, I mean, would you say, and we won't go into it much, but just, just to establish this, would you say your personality today is a little different from your personality then? Yeah, I, I would say it is. Uh, and others who knew me so well back then, I mean, if Debbie was here, if my wife Debbie was here, she would definitely say, you know, uh, my personality is different. I'm, I've changed. Uh, the man that I was back in that time is this man, but it is not this man, Charles. I'm, I'm a very different man now than I was. Okay. Well, um, this, is, this is the important moment. This is the important moment of our discussion when you take a minute and you tell us about that crisis. What happened the day your life changed? Mm. March, 1996. Healthy Chris, scholar Chris, everything going through the routine of the normal. Uh, it changed drastically. I became sick. I mean, Charles, I was like never sick. I didn't even have a doctor that I would see often. I was healthy, I was athletic, I was coaching sports. I was still playing basketball some with our church league. and very involved, and um, Debbie couldn't figure out what was going on with me. Just sick, high temperature, a fever, took me to the doctor. He did not know what was going on, and then I continued becoming worse. Now, a lot of times as preachers, we say things that don't make sense. Well, this, I, what I was saying was not making sense. I was talking about things that were not real, uh, communicating, falling to the floor, high temperature. Eventually, Debbie took me to the hospital. And I'm like, which hospital are we going to? I'm usually the one that would go to the hospital and visit other people. I would be the one giving hope and encouragement to others. This time, Debbie's taking me to the hospital and I'm the patient. Uh, when I first arrived in the emergency room at the hospital in March, 1996, they did not think I would live. Wow. They did not know what was going on, but my temperature was so high, I could not communicate, uh, passing out. Uh, when they started running tests on me, they were finally able to determine that I had encephalitis. Oh. And again, they did not know if I would live, but if I did live, I would not be able to do the things that I was doing. The normal so, stuff, I would not be able to do that anymore. So when anymore. we think of encephalitis, we think of, of course, a lot of people don't survive. Yes. And then we also know brain injury yes. occurs. Yeah. And uh, that's the way I'm living now, Charles. I'm living with epilepsy as one of the long-term effects of the encephalitis. Severe scar tissue in the left temporal lobe. And, and uh, when they saw that I would live, those things that I did for a living, my vocation, communicating, writing, speaking, preaching, they did not know if I would ever be able to do those things again. Well, that's a great place to stop for right now because I just like cliffhangers. I don't know. I mean, it's a dangerous <laughs> place in your story for us to yeah. stop. But uh, let's go to a commercial. This is a great time for a commercial. And when we come back, we'll find out when and how and what the moment was and what was the precursor that made Reverend Chris Maxwell decide not to be a victim. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors. Ten years ago, Tracy and John McLean began selling handmade baked goods and signature peach pepper jam across Northeast Georgia at farmer's markets and festivals with one simple goal, to love on people with food. Well, that was a decade ago. And today, Bebop's Bakery and Bistro, located on Church Street in Royston, Georgia, has become a destination spot for vacationers traveling through the Peach State and locals alike. On the bakery side, 
they offer a wide variety of traditional and signature pastries, muffins, cupcakes, cookies, and oh. The last time I encountered red velvet carrot and cheesecake this good, it came from one of my favorite bakeries in Brooklyn Heights, New York. And yes, they do take special orders. Over on the bistro side, Tracy and John have created breakfast, lunch, and dinner menus to satisfy big city and small town palates alike. But on certain nights when the moon is just right, they will roll out a special bill of fare at dinner, which brings their faithful customers in from miles around. And do you want to know the reason why? Because 10 years later, the McLeans are still loving on people with food. And we're back from our commercial. Our guest today on the Dangerous Skills podcast is none other than Reverend Chris Maxwell. And when we left him, he was in a very dangerous place in his life, the most dangerous place he had ever been. The question was, would he live or die due to encephalitis and brain injury? Well, so you had encephalitis, you had the brain injury, you're in the hospital, they're trying to figure out what they're gonna do. Uh, will he live, will he die? We, we obviously know you're here, you lived. Yeah. But like, how long did it take you know, okay, you've got this brain injury. At some point, they sent you home. How long did it take for you to determine, man, I want to go on with life. I do not want to be a victim. What am yeah. I going to do? What What happened with your wife? What happened with your life? And how did you pick up and make a, a choice to move on? That's an interesting question, Charles, because I did not uh, fully understand or grasp the situation I was in. That's how so many people are, right? When they're in dangerous places, they yes. don't know how dangerous it really is. Right. I didn't understand really that I was dying. Um, but here I am, the, the scholar Chris with a great memory. Charles, I had memorized books of the Bible, everybody in our church, I knew their names. I just had it, it was just easy for me. I mean, now, of all the things, of all the attacks you could have yeah, on you. Yeah, why that, why me? That you were like <laughs> the smart guy, the brain guy, the memory guy. I mean, that's one of the first things I learned about you before I ever even met you. Hey, you know that Chris Maxwell, before he had that thing, he, he could recite entire books of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, and suddenly that was all taken from you. And I'm in Florida Hospital East in Orlando, Florida, and could not remember the names of our three sons. Wow. I remembered Debbie's name. That was good. Um, that was the beginning. Yeah. Remembered one other name. My mom, I remembered her name, Carolyn, and I never called her that, and she died when I was 19. It was wow. just like interesting of the brain. Um, my father comes into town, comes to visit me, and I just stare at him, not knowing who he is. How does that make him feel? So it's like different parts. How is Debbie responding to this? How are our three sons responding to this? And fortunately, again, in this hospital that Debbie took me to, we had a, had a, 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 a physician and a neurologist who were there at that hospital at the right time wow. to begin to detect what, what the cause was and what to do with treatment. But your question really is pointing to kind of what I'm avoiding now. You're yeah. asking about me. I'm talking about them. That's more convenient. Yeah, don't, don't avoid the question. Don't avoid yeah. the danger. Yeah. If you never get yeah. past the danger, you'll never get the skills. Yeah. And I just want to keep talking about them. But the, <laughs> the dangerous place I was in, Charles, I'm in a hospital room by myself and beginning, slowly beginning to grasp what I can't grasp slowly beginning to understand that I don't understand things that I could formally understand and grasp. I was journaling in the hospital room, oh. writing by hand, 
didn't spell them correctly because I was, you know, at that time I was not able to write or communicate, didn't know how to spell, but I was journaling. And, and the best example I can use, Charles, it was like the Psalms. Honest confessions full of questions. Some people say, well, you should never ask God why. My response to that is why. <laughs> why? Because in that dangerous place, the why that I was asking, didn't fully understand the where that I was or the who that I was becoming, but the why I was asking was part of my therapy well, of a, adjusting and adapting to this new me in that dangerous place and getting to know this person that I had never been and did not want to be. And sometimes wow. I still wish I was not. Wow, wow. But I had to come to terms with that in journaling, prayerful, poetic journaling in a hospital room where I could hardly spell uh, that helped me continue the life of living. Well, now that's a really good on, you know, introduction to the next part. So what were your years of rehabilitation like? And when did you start writing actual books? Because we first met over a book. Right. Um, yeah, I can uh, remember when I tried to begin writing again and reading again. Uh, I can remember the first book that I read or tried to read as I, as I had to learn to read again. And then writing, uh, one of the editor friends that I had written um, devotions and um, curriculum for for many years, he yes. gave me the first assignment post-illness. Mm. And he said it was terrible. <laughs> but at least he gave me a chance. You know, and the danger, the danger really is, is when someone doesn't give us a chance or we don't give ourselves a chance. He gave me a chance and I learned to write again by writing. Wow. I learned to yes. read again by reading. I learned to preach again by preaching. I mean, think about our church leadership team. They were afraid for me to go back on the pulpit because what, what is the pastor going to say? Yeah. My neurologist encouraged them, give him a chance. You learn by doing. You learn to write by writing. You learn to speak by speaking. And they, those, what a wonderful congregation we had, Charles. They gave me the microphone again. It was scary. But I had editors that would give me a chance to write again. And I learned to write. One of the editors said the scholar Chris became the poet. Yes. With severe brain damage in the left temporal lobe, the, the rest of the brain has to do extra work to, to compensate. Uh, for the damage. And so everything is like a poem to me. It twists and it turns and it goes in so many different directions. And you've seen me yes. in those in those weak moments mm -hmm. where is, is he gonna have a seizure? Is he gonna remember a word? Right. We're filming him, is he gonna remember a name? But, but I'm just like in this ongoing search of hope in the middle of the uncertainty and the mm. confusion. It's a great phrase. So, Okay, so what kind of skills do you develop to rebuild your life? When, 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 when a person, they may not have had your crisis, they yeah. may not have experienced your danger, Yeah. but what kind of skills mm. did you develop? What kind of skills can people develop yeah. to get through their dangerous time, their crisis? Charles, this is such an important question. The skill that, in, in my opinion, I believe is missing in our culture but the skill that I needed to accept and, and begin applying was the skill of reaching for help, mm. crying out for help. I had to go to a speech therapist. I had to learn to read and write again. I had to be trained. Initially, I did not want that help. You know, that initial reluctance? Yes. We have to fight through the initial reluctance. And that, that skill that we need to apply is, I need help. 
I am willing to ask for help. And you've worked with me. You know how I have oh, sure. to operate and things like this. And I mean, I wish I knew it all. I wish I didn't have to ask somebody to help. But I'm like, okay, can you remind me of what? And give me the look and say their name out loud. This many years later, Charles, I still do not remember names. This brain is still damaged. This life is still damaged. But I mean, aren't all lives damaged? What I, what I think is really interesting in all the work we've done together over the years is uh, you developed method. And of course, I'm a big believer in method. I'm, yeah. I'm always looking for the way. And sometimes I'll look past other things in the midst of looking for method, but method's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And I see you, you'll come in and say, okay, Charles, we're gonna be doing this thing. So here's my method. I, we need to write down this name and we need mm -hmm. to create this way of communicating about it. So I can do this job, but I need to do these things to get there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's helped me. And I, the other thing, I had, Charles, I had to accept this new me. Yeah. Um, some other people didn't. Yeah. Was I willing to accept them not accepting me? Mm -hmm. The majority of people did. Family did. Uh, so many people have accepted that me. But am I willing to accept the me I no longer am? Some of, some of the uh, work that I do for you in, in the studio and... Uh, I'm the one asking questions to the scholars. Mm -hmm. I'm not the scholar. They're not asking me questions. Am I willing to be okay with that? And I had to come to terms with saying yes to that that I wish wasn't a reality, but I have to accept it. And man, accepting that new me with all of my struggles and my limps and my scars, that is like therapy. That's we, the medicine I need to take. You know, a few years ago, we did a show called Pause, which we're gonna do more of again soon. And I remember you telling me, you know, people stopping you in the grocery store and the restaurants everywhere you went and telling you how that show and the topics that were covered touched their lives and helped them. Yeah. So instead of being the scholar, you became the question asker. You became the host. Yeah. And yeah. unlike a lot of ministers, you know <laughs> when to stop, when to start and when to stop talking. You mm -hmm. do it really well. And that is the skill set you need from a host. So yeah. how, how is it when people come up to you and tell you that that what you do in this new realm of operation, how does that how does that touch you? People are desperate to be heard. And my hope is that when I'm talking to people, I'm not doing all the talking, I'm listening to them and actually paying attention. Um, as I'm as I'm counseling clients, so many of them feel like they are not heard. No one is listening to them. Right. No one is willing to hear their story. And if I just ask them open-ended questions, it's helpful for my brain to do that because I can just pause and relax the brain, just some neuroplasticity going on using yeah. different parts of the brain, and I can listen to them, but then they feel valued. They feel that they are important, that their story has value, that their story is being heard, and, and I'm not just rushing on to the next thing. They are the thing. They are what matters now. Wow. Okay. So now the second most important question in the entire interview today. So these, uh, you've developed certain skills since your injury, since you, you know, worked your way back. How do these newfound skills sort of make you dangerous in your environment? Yeah, it's dangerous because honestly, Charles, I want to go right to the people who are struggling and nicely encourage them to deal with the issues they're living in denial of. 
they, their methods of denial are damaging them in other ways. And I want to be like, um, you know those times when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you have to stop because the traffic's bad or, you know, the, the cops, you know, there's been an accident or something's happening and you have to stop. I want to be that, that one that interrupts their lives. Yeah. And, oh, that's a dangerous, that's dangerous, Pastor Chris. I don't want to go there. Uh, you, there's a part of you that feels like you do not want to, but the deeper part of you is desperate to go to that place. Wow. It is the dangerous place, but Charles, the dangerous place is the place of healing. Yes. The dangerous place turns away from the denial and you're willing to, well, I like to say it, face it and let God grace it. <laughs> other, ways that, other ways that we can word it, instead of living in denial, let's deal with the deeper issues of our pain. Not the surface stuff that we always talk about, that initial stuff, but and not just well, my name is Chris Maxwell, I have epilepsy. You know, I travel all over and speak that. What is the real issue? I'm Chris Maxwell and I have to accept this me yes. that I never wanted to be. And so as I'm talking to other people, I want them to, to, to meet themselves in that place, to like look in the mirror and say, all right, this is who I am. I'm made in the image of God, even with my limps and my scars and my struggles. Feels dangerous. Yes. But that dangerous place is the place that we need to be. Yeah. Okay, so you went through a life-threatening, life-altering crisis. Yeah. You had to be completely remade and rebuilt, and you had to have the will and the desire to be willing to do that. And you came to a new place, and now you have become dangerous to indecision mm -hmm. and dangerous to people, uh, dangerous to the circumstances people don't want to deal with. Uh, you know, one of the things I've learned is you've got to go there. People often uh, are like, Charles, I'd love very much to do something. Charles, I know you, you, know, you wrote one of the definitive books on human trafficking. Charles, you, you, you've worked to fight against human trafficking, and uh, I want to do something about it. And I'm like, are you willing to go there? Are you yeah. willing to put yourself in danger to do it? And most people aren't. I mean, mm -hmm. when they really think about it, they, they just don't think it through. But... You have to get the danger to get the skills. And you yeah. definitely made it through the danger. You definitely got the skills. And now you're there helping other people. Is there anything you'd, else you'd like to say? I just want to say thank you because you've been one of those people to help me. I can remember a time when uh, I was at a breakfast table and not many people around me knew what I was going through. But you were sitting at another table. And I just walked over. Everybody thought I was just going over to speak to you. And I told you, Charles, my neurological system is not doing good this morning. I don't want to scare anybody, but I want you to keep an eye on me. It's kind of a dangerous, dangerous to admit it, but it's more dangerous if we don't, you know? So just saying that to you, and then after I finished breakfast, who followed me where I was going? You did. You were willing to, to address the dangers of life and move me to a place of, Chris, I am here for you. Thank you for being there for me. Thank you for including stories like this because uh, we've been too silent about the scars and the dangers in life. Uh, I say it's noisy silence because people are crying out desperately inside for their stories to be heard and for others to listen to their stories and help walk them through those dangerous places. You've done that for me. Other people have done that for me. Thank, thank God and thank you. Well, it's an absolute honor and you are my friend. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in. Tune in again 
uh, please go to the website, dangerousskills.com. And if my feet are tapping and my head is bobbing, you hear the music just like I do. And that is it for this episode of the Dangerous Skills Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Powell. We will see you again next time. Uh, next time. Judy, take it away. This has been the Dangerous Skills Podcast. End transmission.